Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. More than 8,000 Palestinians are being held in Israeli jails amid an intensified wave of arrests and detentions in Gaza and the West Bank since October 7th. Adamir, a human rights group supporting Palestinian political prisoners, said the detainees include hundreds from Gaza, including 123 women, though the true total from the territory could be much higher. Earlier this month, the Palestinian Prisoners Club, an advocacy group that keeps a tally of detainees from the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem, said there are about 7,800 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails, the highest total for at least 14 years. The numbers for those held in administrative detention, indefinitely and without charge, is at a historic high. 80% of detainees since October 7th fall into this category. Earlier this month, images leaked of Israeli troops overseeing dozens of Palestinian men detained in Gaza, stripped to their underwear, and in some cases blindfolded and handcuffed. On Tuesday, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported that hundreds of the men were being held at a military base in the south of Israel and that several had died in unclear circumstances. During the week-long ceasefire, which ended on December 1st, Israel released 240 Palestinian minors and women from its jails in return for 80 Israeli hostages taken during the attacks into southern Israel, which also killed 1,200. Israel's ensuing offensive in Gaza has killed more than 18,700 people, mostly women and children. Most of the 14 to 17-year-olds freed had been detained for investigation and not convicted of a crime, reported the Palestinian Prisoners Club, based on data from the Israeli Prison Service. Over that same week, Israel arrested 260 other Palestinians, leading to a net increase in the number of prisoners, the group said. The pace of Israeli arrests of Palestinians, already quickening over the past two years, has accelerated. Many observers say Israel's systemic use of administrative detention is a violation of international law. Ibrahim Dalalsha, an analyst at the Horizon Center in Ramallah, said the new wave of arrests did not appear to be based on specific intelligence. Quote, Usually, the Israelis are going after people who are likely to commit or have committed offenses after having a specific tip or information. This time, they have gone after all people, different types of activists, their relatives, municipal workers. It's preemptive kind of arrest and very broad, Dalasha said. The conviction rate for security offenses in the West Bank is more than 99%. Campaigners say detainees are often unable to read Hebrew language statements or other documents, even confessions, and defense lawyers encourage young clients to plead guilty to avoid lengthy trials and detentions. Lawyers say the crackdown is indiscriminate, with people branded as security threats for even mild social media posts. Within the span of two months, six Palestinian men have died in Israeli custody, the highest number of cases in such a short period in decades, the UN said. Two weeks ago, the UN Human Rights Office and the Occupied Palestinian Territory called for all deaths in custody and allegations of mistreatment to be investigated. Since the 7th of October, 
prisoners have been subject to a state of emergency, allowing them to be confined to their cells and so unable to receive family visits or buy food. They also face more frequent surprise searches and electricity for devices has been cut off. Some of those released during the ceasefire last month described beatings, deprivation, and a significant deterioration in conditions in Israeli military jails after the October 7th attacks. The three million Palestinian residents of the occupied West Bank are subject to Israel's military justice system, while the nearly 500,000 Jewish settlers living in the territory with Israeli citizenship are subject to civilian courts. A jury in Washington state acquitted all three of the police officers who killed Manuel Ellis in Tacoma in March of 2020, according to Reuters and BBC News reports from December 22nd. The three officers were accused of second-degree murder and manslaughter for knocking Mr. Ellis to the ground, tasing him in the chest, fixing a hood over his head, applying a chokehold, and restraining him on the pavement until he died. The cops' lawyers argued that Mr. Ellis' death from asphyxiation was due to a pre-existing heart condition and methamphetamine in his system. A doorbell surveillance video showed Mr. Ellis addressing the officers as sir and telling them he was struggling to breathe. An officer responded, telling him to shut up using an expletive. Ellis's case was first brought against law enforcement officers under a new police accountability statute that Washington state voters approved by referendum five years ago. Ellis's family members and supporters expressed anger at the outcome of the trial. Mr. Ellis, known as Manny, died just weeks before George Floyd, also dead at the hands of officers who ignored his pleas to breathe and six years after Eric Garner uttered those same words. This week, we're sharing the first part of an interview with Leon Benson, covering his release from prison, reflections on the treatment he received, and his work on the outside. This is a special privilege for KiteLine, since we've aired Benson's work and thought many times over the years, since he was a leading organizer and thinker inside the Indiana Department of Corrections. We're thrilled that he's been released, and we're excited to share news of his ongoing work to challenge the prison system. We'll continue this interview in our next episode, but for now, here's Leon. Hey, Kite Line, hey, thank you for having me. You know, my name is Leon Benson, a.k.a. L. Bentley 448. Uh, I'm an exoneree as of six months. Now, uh, I was exonerated March 9th, 2023, after 25 years of wrongful incarceration in the state of Indiana for the crime of murder, specifically for murdering uh, a young man at the time named Casey Shane. While inside, you know, I'd done a lot of activism. I found my political, social, and moral consciousness while on the inside and I feel like I could speak to the testament to the people of having to save yourself and then being helped it makes me think about a quote that Frederick Douglass once said a man without force is without essential dignity of humanity Human nature is so constituted that it cannot honor a helpless man, although it can pity him. And even this cannot happen for long if he do not show power. That power is the self-autonomy, the, the way to rise up against oppression, 
within your personal spaces and then let that power be reflected outwardly to people that you encounter. If you could provide a little bit of context about your time in Indianapolis and sort of how you ended up getting set up for this murder, you know, hearing a little bit about the circumstances of the murder. And it really sounds from reading the University of Michigan article that this really wasn't also a matter of racial profiling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, so so for all the listeners, you know, I'm originally from Flint, Michigan. I'm from Flint, Michigan. I grew up in Flint. Uh, it's a blue, it's a blue collar community, a uh, small community, a uh, urban black community as well. It has a lot of pride. You know, you will see people like Montine Cleese, who who play for the uh, University of uh, uh, Michigan State University Spartans. You know, where they won the championships back in uh, the early two thousands. You have. Uh, you know, rap groups like the Dayton Family, Top Authority, MC Breed, you know, from the 90s. And you have newer artists now today like John Connor, uh, as well as uh, 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 Lou Graham and Rio, the young OG. So, you know, Flint, you know, really, really shaped and mold who I was. You know, unfortunately, you know, I grew up in a place that had a backdrop of drugs and violence uh, in my community. The first people I looked up to was drug dealers, were, were people in the streets. You know, in Marxist terms, we are called these the lumpings. The lumpings are people who generally don't care about politics. They're more concerned about their everyday life, surviving. However, that survival is, it can be by means of honest living or, you know, doing something in subculture, in the underworld, gambling, uh, selling drugs, prostitution, uh, embezzlement, what have you. So, you know, I grew up in this environment. You know, I lived in Detroit for several years as well in the Puritan and Fairfield area, you know, on Detroit's west side by uh, Detroit Mercy uh, College. It was, it was very fruitful. It was cool. You know, really the same type of dynamic is Flint, just broader in a bigger city. Uh, in 2004, no, 2005, not 2000, 1995, I'm sorry. In 1995, I left uh, Detroit and I went, I, I came back home to Flint for a little while just to regroup. I was young, I still was 19 and my uncle, he had lived in Indianapolis for years before, and him and his wife had separated. So my uncle, he asked me to help him move to Indianapolis. So I helped him move. I packed a U-Haul with him in Flint, and we drove down to Indianapolis. While in Indianapolis, after I helped him move, I had another uncle, my eldest uncle, rest in peace, Cleveland Gibbs. Uh, he... Uh, con he connected me with a, a job, like a, a professional paint job. At that time, I did have certification in carpentry and 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 home renovation. So I quickly jumped on an opportunity, and you know, the first week I made like fifteen hundred 
in like four days work. And I was like, I'm staying in Indianapolis. So I initially stay in Indianapolis because of the employment that I got. You know, it was it was an easy job for me. So I stayed down. I, I lived with my uncle for a while and my uncle Cleveland. And that's where I met, you know, a lot of the Indianapolis natives on the in the near downtown area on 13th in Alabama in Indianapolis, Indiana. This place was historical for, you know, drug dealing, prostitution. It's known as a red light district because you have a lot of the gay pubs and clubs and you have a lot of the people from the queer trans gender community or the LGBTQ communities, you know, in this area, you know, this is the area that was a hub, you know, for this activity in this community and culture. Uh, everything was, uh, was very inter intersecting, uh, transit as well. This part of Indianapolis really resembled like Detroit, you know, Detroit is a faster city than Indianapolis you know, because it's it been around longer, you know, now Indianapolis is definitely a thriving, thriving metro hub, and it's growing, you know, it's neck and neck with all these other cities now, but back then, it was a little slower than Detroit, but this part of Indianapolis was very, very uh, transit city-like to me, so, you know, uh, I went on, you know, to continue my job, you know, with my uncle, uh, the company I worked for was William Decker Painting Company. You know, Decker was a white guy, older gentleman. He had been in the field of home innovations. He could fix anything. You know, I learned a lot from uh, uh, Decker, as I call him. Uh, I don't know if he's still alive today, but he definitely uh, he did he did good by me. You know, while I worked with him. So I worked with him for about a year, year and a half. And eventually I got I, I got laid off because he ran out of work. He was ailing in his health and he laid me off. But because I was in an area and I hung out with the natives who happened to be, you know, uh, 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 drug dealers as well. And I hung out with them every day. I wasn't selling drugs at first or nothing like that. But I mean, you are who you hang around, you know, sometimes. And eventually, you know, when I got laid off, I got to dibbling and dabbling. And the first place that I took off at was the place that I knew was just near downtown area. In this area, because I'm from Michigan, everybody called me Detroit. Now, everybody know in Michigan that, you know, Flint, Detroit, you got Saginaw, you got Ben Harbor, you got Kalamazoo, you got Pontiac, Lansing, Ann Arbor, you know, you got all these different places. So up here, we very distinctive. Like I'm from Flint, like the two known cities, urban cities in Michigan is Flint and Detroit, you know, and, and you know, you get a Ben Harbor coming in there, but these two cities have been historically like the biggest urban hubs of Michigan, you know, with Detroit definitely being the biggest city in Michigan. So when they start calling me the nickname Detroit, I was like, man, I'm not from Detroit. But when you leave Michigan, everybody tends to just think about Detroit. It wasn't until here recently, 
the the Flint water crisis that Flint really like Flint, Michigan. But, you know, usually they say Detroit and that's what happened here. So in this neighborhood, just in this neighborhood and, and mind you, I was bigger than that neighborhood because I eventually bumped into a young lady and we became romantically involved and it produced two children out of this relationship. We didn't live in the near downtown area anymore. Although my uncle Cleveland Gibbs did, my late uncle, he just recently passed and uh, he just, he passed right before I got out, you know, uh, he was in his eighties, but Everywhere else in Indianapolis, uh, they called me Lee, you know, because they knew me. They knew Lee. They didn't call me Detroit. But in this area, they called me Detroit. So I set up shops, so to speak, in this area. And while in that area, uh, I was, I was, uh, I guess, you would, you know, I was a successful, low-level, you know, drug dealer, you know, in the area. The area was uh, ripe with a lot of buildings. It was industrious. It still is. And that made it uh, a sweet place to do illicit activities like sell drugs. It was, you didn't never have to be on a corner to sell drugs. You can go in an apartment building or whatnot. But this is what landed me in Indianapolis, that job. Uh, and I stayed and I eventually got into the the life of uh, dealing drugs again after a year and a half or so while I was in Indianapolis. And how did that get you accused of this murder? What were the circumstances of the killing, especially in this particular neighborhood? Hey, that's a great question. Well, one thing is I was involved in selling drugs for one, in this area. This area was a high crime area at the time. And on August 7th, you know, I came out in a day. It was a it was a huge day for me. Well, what I thought was huge. It was a it was a big day for me. I made a lot of money that day. And you know, I wasn't out there, you know, uh beating people up or terrorizing people. I didn't have to do it. I had a lot of uh, uh, charisma about myself and a lot of uh, etiquette, business etiquette about myself. You know, I knew I was selling myself more than I was just selling the drugs. So a lot of people really cling to me. You know, a lot of people call me nephew. Hey, nephew, you know, some of the users, a lot of the elder users that, you know, I dealt with. But in this particular area that day, you know, it was a lot of uh, activity. You know, I was walking on foot. I didn't have to go nowhere. I just stayed in the vicinity from one building to the next. The main building that I was in is called Little Vietnam. Little Vietnam is 1309 Pennsylvania Street, the Priscilla's. Uh, this building was named Vietnam long before uh, I had uh, arrived in Indianapolis. I just took up residence in it as making it one of my hubs that I ducked out in. It just was an apartment building of 40 apartments, two floors, and everybody, like, like 
90% of the residents used drugs, you know, crack cocaine at that time. And it, it was a perfect hub for me. It was, it was my, my central base. And I would go out and still visit other buildings, but I always circle back to Vietnam. And on that particular day, uh, the night wind down and I made a, a, a lot of money and, 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 and I, I retreated to the back stairwells of the little Vietnam. Everybody in the area that knew me by Detroit, I was a staple in the area by this time. So I'm, I've been in the area all the time. I was in Indianapolis and I was selling drugs for like a year or two now in the area. So people knew me. I was the staple guy in the area. So they knew to come to the little Vietnam at night. I stayed out a little longer. I was with a gentleman by the name of Timothy Gaither. He was uh, a part of the crowd uh, of guys that I met when I initially came to uh, Indianapolis. Uh, I consider him, you know, a friend, you know, people outside of that associates or, you know, of them, but they wasn't friends. You know, I was out in the field and he was with me that night. We were sitting on the stairwell. We sent a gentleman to the varsity lounge, which was down the street from the little Vietnam building. And it was a gay bar. And I sent him there to, to buy some beers, you know, because I wanted to, you know, still be there and get money. I didn't have a problem going in there myself to get anything. I didn't have no problem with, 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 with people or their sexual preference. Matter of fact, I made a lot of money <laughs> with the LGBTQ community. Cause guess what? Everybody, Hey, white, black, not people use drugs and we made money, unfortunately, of whoever was willing to buy them. And he came back with the, with the beers and we sat there. It was like my, homage to the to the place i think i bought like two cases or some and i just was passing them out to some of the the people that was frequent in the, the back of the building that'll buy some from me everything slowed down and then it was like some pops like some gunshots and it sounded like they came from the back of the building so i went into an apartment 19 that was occupied by a young lady but she was older, uh, uh, Yolanda Hill. Uh, uh, and I looked and seen everything. It was nothing there, you know. And it was uh, Shirley Gaskin who was instrumental to, you know, in my case. Because she was buying drugs from me, doing the sound. She jumped into the building at the back door. We went out and investigated. It was nothing there. And just typical of just being uh, decentralized to violence and hearing gunshots and those type of things in that urban setting of the 90s in Indianapolis. Uh, for us, we just went back to what we was doing like less than a minute later. And about 15 to 30 minutes later, me and Timothy Gaither, we left and went to my apartment that was... Uh, my personal apartment that was located on Eastern St. Clair. And, you know, I went to sleep and I woke up the next day eager to get back to it. Uh, so at this time, this is, this is August 8th that I'm leaving out the building in the morning, the wee morning hours when we heard those shots and we just, you know, I went back home. I probably made it home uh, about 
4.30. It was like a half a mile, mile walk to my apartment from that building. And, you know, I, I woke back up at like 11. You know, I was young at the time. I was 22 years old. So I woke back up. I was like, man, I'm going to go back out and get some more money. So I got up and went back out to the building, to the area. It was dead, silent. Nothing was moving, went in the building. Nothing was going on. I was like, man, everybody was asleep. I was like, oh, it just stopped. So I went to a building on 14th in Pennsylvania by the name of uh, the St. Regents. And I I buzzed in. You got to buzz in. I buzzed into an apartment of a, gem, uh, of a gentleman, you know, named Pops. And I go up there. And him and his wife and another young lady was there. And they was telling me that a shooting happened on that very corner the night before. And that was my first time knowing that somebody had got shot. For me, my initial response was, who the hell would do some dumb stuff like that, some dumb shit like this, and we get money over here? Like, who would do this? And they told me that a young man was shot. And they said he was shot because he made a sexual advance to an individual and an individual shot him. And I was like, wow, you know, uh, man, you know, uh, I stayed in the area a little while, then I left. And, you know, like I came back another day, I couldn't do nothing. It was sworn with police. The gentleman that was that was murdered was Casey Shane. He was 23 years old at the time. He was a Plainfield native. Uh, he uh, he was a white white male, and you know, eventually, it was another individual named Donald Brooks. He was a confidential informant, and his mission was to come get the person named Detroit, whose name was ringing. And I didn't know this. So days later on, August 14th, I had visited the area, uh, specifically uh, my uncle's girlfriend's uh, house. He was there. I didn't go in, but I sat on a stoop that was on 13th in New Jersey. And I ran into Shirley Gaskin with two other gentlemen. And one of the gentlemen's name was Donald Brooks. Donald Brooks had uh, attempted to make a deal with me the night of the crime, but he never came back through to the little Vietnam to, to pick up his drugs. And when I came out, he asked me about it. But at the time, it was it was so it was so many police and detectives in the area because of the crime that when I came out, I didn't have no drugs or nothing on me. But I promised him some drugs, you know, the days to follow. You know, when they calmed down to meet me at a specific location and I had him, but, you know, he agreed and he walked off and he went directly to a, a off duty officer and told him that the guy Detroit who committed the crime is over there. And I was arrested. But when I was arrested, this is stuff that I know after the fact, when I was arrested, it was for a probation violation because I had a possession of cocaine, a misdemeanor possession of cocaine. And I had stopped showing up for my probation. You know, hey, I was all over the place. Young, silly kid who thought they knew something but didn't know. And that's where I was at in my life. So I, you know, I violated pro, you know, 
probation. So that's what they arrested me. I had a warrant. So they took me to the station. They also took Shirley Gaskin, but I thought they was taking her for a different reason, but they took me down and uh, they put me in an interrogation room. I didn't realize it was a interrogation room because even though I was an urban person and I, I experienced all this crime, I had very little uh, contact with uh, the police in this capacity of, uh, you know, being interrogated. This was like my first thing. So I thought I just was in a little waiting room waiting for him to come and talk to me about probation. We'll continue this interview in our next episode. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.